Uh, we're entering into, as the church calendar historically has been understood, uh, Holy Week, uh, the week in the church calendar that starts today, uh, traditionally known as Palm Sunday, uh, and goes through next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, or in the world's kind of uh, terminology, Easter Sunday. But this is where we are this morning. Uh, in the middle of Luke chapter 23, we've been in Luke, marching through this last week of Jesus' life, really since the beginning of January, and we find ourselves uh, today looking at the crucifixion of Jesus in verses 26 to 43. On Friday evening, we're going to look at the death and the burial of Jesus in verses 44 to 56, and then on Sunday morning, we're going to look at the resurrection at the beginning of Luke chapter 24. So that's where we are and that's where we're going. But today, chapter 23, 26 to 43, if you're able, let me invite you to stand as I read this aloud. And when I'm done, I'm going to signal that I'm done by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Luke 23, starting at verse 26. As they, and that is the Roman soldiers, as they led him, and that is Jesus, away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But, but turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were, who were, hanging, who were hanged rallied at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. It's been a rough week for, uh, for a lot of people. I'll say more about it, but our, our, our deacon's offering later this morning uh, is going to be designated for tornado victims in the southeast. We take a deacon's offering every month when we celebrate the Lord's Supper for those who are in need. This morning, our deacons are going to take that offering and they're going to give it entirely to relief efforts that are happening after tornadoes that happened last week uh, in the southeast. We already prayed for Covenant Presbyterian Church in, in Nashville. Uh, there are families in this church who have lost close family members, uh, even in this past week. Some we've mentioned, some we haven't. It's been a rough week. Come to think of it, it's actually been a pretty rough year. Covenant School in Nashville is not the only incident of school violence uh, so far this year. Earthquake victims and 
Turkey and Syria, tornadoes aren't the only natural disasters. Hurricane Ian last fall, right? Still a war raging in Ukraine, remember? And it's not like even before the last year, the first part of the 21st century uh, didn't have its serious struggles with high-profile reminders of death, right? 9-11, decades of war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Unless, unless the 21st century has you longing for the 20th century, right? That wasn't all that great either from the context of reminding us of death among us, two global wars, pandemics as well, right? Unprecedented genocides. Come to think of it, you can kind of pick your century, pick your year, pick your week even. Some might think Others are better than others. Some weeks are better than other weeks. Some centuries are better than other centuries. But when you really look at it closely, you can't escape it. Death is always there. That's kind of a depressing way to start if you're ready to leave already. But it is important to put what we just read in that context because I really don't think that there's a better place to look in the Bible to help us with this question of why all this death? What do we make of it? And where is God in the midst of it? There is no better place to look at that question than through the crucifixion of Jesus. And it is a great text to consider as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a couple of minutes. Because here we see Jesus going to his death, but it's not as a result of some tragic accident or mistake. It is a part of a long-planned rescue mission to save us from the consequences of death. There's three themes I want to quickly review about the account that we just read. Each of them have their own lessons, and each of them will lead us into further discussion next, this coming Friday and, and next Sunday, but three lessons from what we just read. First, I want us to look at how the way this fulfills the prophecies of Scripture. Second, I want us to see how it gives us a picture of the seriousness of, of death and God's perfect justice. And third, I want to see how what we just read, even in the midst of all the death, offers us hope that God is always up to something bigger than what we sometimes think. You got that? Those are the themes. They're listed in the bulletin if you want to follow along. The fulfillment of Scripture, the picture of judgment, and the offer of hope. Now first, let's look at the fulfillment of Scripture. This passage is filled with references to other parts of the Bible. We'll just look at a few of them. All right, if you have your Bible, you want to be quick on the draw, you're welcome to try to keep up. But I'm going to move quickly so just feel free to listen, right? First, just take a look at verse 27. You see this great multitude of women following Jesus and they're mourning and they're lamenting, right? That's what it says. And that is a fulfillment of the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 12 when the Lord is speaking and says that there will be a day that will come when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. There will become a day when they will weep over the Lord as he is pierced. That's what the women are doing. And verse 32, we see another instance. We see Jesus is crucified with two others, it says. Criminals. Mark and Matthew call them, them thieves. But this is probably more than just petty theft here that's happening. But it is a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53. In the middle of a passage clearly about the suffering of the Messiah, it says that this suffering Messiah was numbered among the transgressors. And here Jesus is among the transgressors. Or another example, verse 34, it says the soldiers cast lots to divide up Jesus' clothes as he was being crucified. 
It was sort of the perk of the job if you were a Roman centurion on crucifixion duty. Probably not a lot that was fun about it. But hey, when they were killed, you get their clothes. And so they divided them up by casting lots. Right? Now, kids, I don't know if you've ever heard that term, casting lots, before, if you know what that means. It's kind of like, I mean, there was a, there was a, there was a biblical significance. Sometimes it was used in the Old Testament for certain other reasons to cast lots. But the Romans, what they were doing is basically just like rolling dice to, to kind of figure out who got his clothes. Maybe you've kind of seen people do rock, paper, scissors, right? That's kind of what the Romans were doing. They were doing rock, paper, scissors to see who got Jesus' clothes. But it was a fulfillment of what the Bible had said because, as you know, in Psalm 22, verse 18, a psalm that Jesus later quotes himself from the cross, also clearly about the suffering of the Messiah, it says in Psalm 22:18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. This is hundreds of years before Jesus, and this is what the prophet said. Now, there's another spot. Jesus prays the, that the Father would forgive those who were doing this to him. Right? Right? Not only is Jesus fulfilling his only command to pray for his enemies, but it says in Isaiah 53, 12, that the suffering Messiah would not only be counted among the transgressors, but that, Isaiah said, that he would make intercession for the transgressors. And here Jesus is fulfilling what had been prophesied. One more. Let me give you one more. In Luke 23, right, verse 35 that we just read, we see how everyone's mocking him, scoffing at him. The rulers, right, they're all, they're all mocking him. The, 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 the Jewish rulers, the, the, the Roman soldiers, even one of the criminals, right, even the sign that's hanging above him is sort of mocking him. Well, did you know that they were all directly fulfilling Psalm 22, verse 8, where it says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And not only does Psalm 22 say that, that they would mock the Messiah as he suffers, but it tells us how they would mock the Messiah. If you keep reading Psalm 22, right, now into verse 9, it says, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Right? That was the mocking. Right? Let the Lord deliver him if he trusts in the Lord. If he's really who he says he is, this Messiah, let the Lord deliver him. Not only said that he was going to be mocked, but how he was going to be mocked. So you see, all woven throughout the text. Right? Now that's cool, right? But it's not enough to just kind of sort of nerd out on the Bible's interconnectedness, right? Who cares? Right? Two quick lessons. This is why this matters. This is what this means. First, this clearly shows us that everything that's happening to Jesus here was expected. And more than that, it was meticulously planned. Right? That's not how the Romans intended it. That's not how the Jewish leaders intended it. But nothing that was happening was an accident. Jesus is walking onto the stage with his steps perfectly blocked out for the grand climax of the story, of the grand climax of all of human history. This is where the master plan was going to come into full effect. It was all planned. Now, the second lesson, if that's true of Jesus' suffering, think about this and make this personal now, perhaps in your own most recent week of suffering. If that's true of Jesus' suffering, then you have every reason to believe that it is no different whatsoever for the suffering that you're experiencing as well. Look, I know that there can be honest, intellectual, emotional, real struggles with why God is allowing the suffering in our own personal lives. It is okay to ask those questions. Why, God, why? Or in the world around us, why, God, would you allow something like this to, to happen? But, but those struggles are real, but to me, they're, they're significantly less 
struggle in accepting what the Bible teaches and what we see right here. In accepting that in the midst of all of our why questions, there is a God who is in complete control even if we can't see how. That nothing that is happening to us is happening to us by accident or outside of the hands of a God who is able to bring comfort and bring something through it. That nothing is happening to us except through the hands of a God who has planned our days, determined our steps, and numbered our years. He is not surprised by your suffering. It doesn't catch him off guard. And he is in complete loving control over it, even as you struggle to understand exactly what it means. Now, that doesn't mean that he just tells you to brush it off, right? Nah, no big deal. God's in control. No, no, no. Which is why we need the second point, not just the first point. Because the second point that's woven through this passage is that suffering and death are a really big deal. Actually, an even bigger deal than you probably realize. Which is where we get to point number two. This suffering of Jesus that he is experiencing as he goes to and as he hangs on the cross is a picture of God's justice and God's seriousness, the seriousness with which he takes sin. Now, the first place we see this is, is in this curious exchange he has with the mourning women. Right? We don't have time to look at it fully, but did you hear this when we read it? Right? Does it seem a little odd to you? Right? You have these women who are mourning, probably city dwellers, not necessarily the women who have been with Jesus right? because Jesus calls them daughters of Jerusalem. Right? And, and it was, wasn't uncommon for, for women to kind of be you know, mourning in, public, in a public way kind of this, like this. And they genuinely, genuinely felt, I'm sure, real sympathy for Jesus. But at, and this is the part that seems odd. Jesus is probably barely able to walk at this point. Right? He's beaten to the edge of his life. And he launches into this little sermon. And he says, don't cry for me, cry for yourselves. Now, why does he say that? Does that seem somewhat insensitive to you, right? right? Start weeping for yourself. What he's saying is actually, what he's saying is that there is actually a death that they should be more concerned about than his. Right? He's, he's saying that they should be more concerned about their own, their own lives, their own mortality. He said, you should be weeping, all right, but not, but not actually for me. And he uses language that, that reminds People that, they're, that, that judgment is approaching. He says the days are coming. That's always a way of talking about how there's a judgment that's coming. And he says that for people who are the real insurrectionists, the real rebels, remember Jesus was being crucified because he was, he was charged with insurrection against the Roman Empire. But Jesus is saying there's coming a day that those who are real rebels against the real authority, that there will be a real judgment. And for those, for you, that's who you should be weeping for. And if what's happening to Jesus, right, is if that seems bad and he's innocent, then how much more seriously ought they to take the judgment that is coming for those who are actually guilty? That must be really bad. That's the point of the little sort of a, a proverb that he gives about the dry wood and the green wood. All right, so that's one place where we see the picture of judgment. The other place, and you may not have thought about this in the same kind of way, is in the mocking of Jesus himself. We already talked about a little bit how it fulfills prophecy. But, but this rejection, remember, was by, by everyone. It was by the Jewish leaders. It was by the Romans. It was by the criminals. It's all a picture of the ultimate judgment that Jesus himself was experiencing, right? Because the consequences of sin, the consequence for rebellion is, is the just rejection of God himself, 
Right? That's the hell that Jesus was about to experience. He was innocent. Jesus was innocent. We made, we made that point last week. I think very clearly that the Bible tells us he was, he was innocent of any charge, but the whole point of the crucifixion was for him to be counted as guilty. And, and when he went and when he suffered on the cross, it was much more than physical agony that he was experiencing. It was the judgment of God. It was God's just rejection in that sense. A rejection to which the rejection of the Jewish leaders and the Romans and the criminals on the cross, it only pointed to the real suffering. So what are the lessons then for us? Well, let me give you just three quick ones. First, lesson from this idea of the seriousness of death and the justice of God. Death and suffering are really a big deal. That's what this is saying. And it's a bigger deal than, than we even think, right? It goes beyond the physical, our death is a consequence of the curse. It is the, the result of our rebellion against God. And you might coil, recoil a little bit and kind of say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Judgment, why do we always have to be talking about judgment? Well, Jesus talked a lot about judgment. That's the simple answer. But, but it wouldn't be wrong to, to go further than that. You can't really have the parts about Jesus that, that you want without experiencing and understanding his wrath and judgment. In fact, to not accept the reality of God's justice and his, and his wrath would be to make a mockery of what Jesus is experiencing here. Because if sin is really no big deal, if it's really no big deal, if it's just kind of a misdemeanor, slap on the wrist, instead of a capital offense, if it can just be pushed aside, then what, is, what in the world is the Son of God doing on a cross? Right? If, if, if justice and judgment aren't a real, really big deal, if the consequences of our rebellion against God aren't a really big deal, then why is it that the Son of God had to come and experience this for you in order to, in order to get you out? Why couldn't it just be wiped away? Because it's really that big a deal. Second lesson, it's all right to cry about injustice. Right? Jesus is not saying that it was wrong for the women to be mourning, to get really upset by it, in fact. Right? In fact, he's saying he wants us to get more upset, not less to get really upset about where the injustice comes from. By all means, he's saying, mourn and wail about injustice and about sin. But the only way, this is the point that he's making, the only way that you're really going to mourn and wail as much as you should be mourning and wailing is if you're mourning and wailing at the source of the injustice, the source of sin that brings this into the world, at the very center of the human heart which is just a way, I suppose, of leading to the third lesson. You can't really cry for Jesus until you cry for yourself. Jesus isn't condemning the women for crying for him. He doesn't call them demons of Jerusalem. He calls them daughters of Jerusalem. He's not condemning. He's warning. He's warning them about the danger that the most loving thing that he could possibly do is tell them to mourn over the right things, to mourn for themselves first. And then as they see their mourning comforted, then they will understand what Jesus did. Then they will rightly be able to mourn for him. It isn't wrong to feel mournful about what's happening to Jesus, but he's saying it's not really going to happen until you rightly mourn and weep over yourself because it's your sin that has led him to where he is. Now, it's not meant to be depressing because it leads us directly into the third point that I think is very clearly here. We don't just see a nerdy fulfillment of Scripture, that was point number one. We don't just see a picture of judgment, that's point number two. We see an offer of hope. In the gospel accounts of Jesus' death, you never have a reading of the events of Good Friday 
without hope. Right? The people of the time, as they were experiencing it, they may not have seen it clearly, but the Christian does not have to wait until Easter to talk about the good news. It isn't just like, okay, well, this is terrible, but we don't see any goodness here, but just wait, because when we get to Luke 24, we'll see some good news. There is good news embedded in all of the gospel accounts of the death and crucifixion of Jesus. Let me just show you, show you three places as we close and move to the Lord's Supper. The first offer of hope, maybe the most obvious offer of hope, the thief on the cross, right? Did you see him? The story is only told by Luke. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus is mocked by the criminals, by both of them who are crucified with him. Only Luke tells us that one of them, at some point during the process, began to understand what was really happening here, right? The, 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 the one the one kept going. Look at verse 39. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He kept, one of them kept the mocking up. He just kept going, right? And it, but interestingly, it isn't Jesus who steps in here. It's the other criminal. The one criminal keeps mocking, and the guy on the other side of Jesus says to the first, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response is the most beautiful thing that a guilty, condemned man could ever possibly hear. Today, he says, you will be with me in paradise. <laughs> paradise. It's, it's a Persian word that referred to a garden in the house of the king where the king would honor one of his subjects by meeting with him there, by walking within the safety of the walled garden of the palace with one of his subjects. And the, the words come out of Jesus' mouth, it is as good as done. It's as if Jesus can anticipate the man's objection. He would say, can this really be true? Can this re are you really inviting me into paradise? Because he prefaces what he says to him with truly, right? Which is just the word amen. That's what it's translating, right? The one whose word spoke the world into existence in, grants eternal paradise to a guilty man and he seals it with the royal amen. Now that's a glimpse of hope in the midst of mourning. Now, the second glimpse of hope we see in this guy, Simon. It's hard to be conclusive about this, but every Bible commentator I've read on this passage, every sermon I've ever listened to, they all indicate that it's, that it's almost certainly not an accident that this guy, Simon of Cyrene, is specifically named by the gospel writers. It's not just some random guy. He's named Simon of Cyrene. He's the one they pulled out of the crowd that they had carry Jesus' cross. Now, what do we know about him? Well, we know he's from Cyrene. It's a region in North Africa, modern-day Tripoli, right? Had a large Jewish population. So it's reasonable to conclude that like lots of Jewish pilgrims at the celebration of the Passover, he was, here, he was there for that reason. Now, this would have been a huge journey. This is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of a thing, right? He's there, probably hugely exciting, a lifelong dream in Jerusalem for the Passover. And he, he just happened to be along the side of the road where Jesus is being led when he stumbles with the cross that he's carrying or when it becomes clear that he's not able to bear this 30 to 40 pound cross beam any, any longer. And imagine it, he's standing in the crowd and along comes a Roman soldier and taps him on the shoulder and says, you, 
pick it up and carry it. And all of a sudden, this nobody from North Africa (laughs) is thrown into the central story of all of human history and named. And we have every indication that it changed his life. Right? In Mark's gospel, Mark adds to this same story a little detail about Simon of Cyrene. He says that Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, which is really curious. Like, why would you add that? Well, here's why. Right? There's no good reason for Mark to include that little fact that this Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus if it didn't mean something to the people that he was writing to, that Mark was writing to. Namely, that they would have known Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus. You know, Alexander and Rufus, his dad, that was the guy. That's what Mark would have been saying. Now, follow me here, right? Most of the historic evidence points to the fact that Mark wrote his gospel account while he was in Rome somewhere in the mid-50s A.D. And in Paul's letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 16, Paul asks the Roman church to greet Rufus for me, whom he calls chosen in the Lord. Hey, Rufus, you know Rufus hanging out among the Romans, you got among the Roman church there? Say hi to him for me. So what this means, now there could have been more than one Rufus, but it does seem that there was a fairly prominent and very well-known Rufus in the church of Rome who very likely, given all the overlapping connections with Mark writing his gospel in Rome as well, was the same Rufus who was the son of this Simon of Cyrene, which just means that this encounter with Jesus on this terrible awful day of suffering and death completely changed the life of this Jewish Passover pilgrim from North Africa. Just a glimpse of the, that God may have been up to something. Now, one last glimpse of hope. This is the ultimate one. Our biggest offer of hope comes not from Jesus' words on the cross, but from his silence. I want you to see the significance of this. Multiple times, three times at least, Jesus is mocked. But it wasn't just making fun of him. It was a very specific temptation. You see what it says. It wasn't just making fun of him. It was saying, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, come down from there. Save yourself. Do you see the temptation in that? It's very similar to the way that Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. It's very similar to what Peter had said to him when Jesus was talking about having to die and Peter was trying to talk him out of it. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. The temptation when they mocked him to come down from that cross was for Jesus to abandon his mission. And in each instance, he stayed exactly where he was. Now admit it, in the movie version that at first you would want to see, you'd want to see him come down, grab the spear, go all like mixed martial arts on everybody around him and, like, and be standing over them, right? You kind of want that at first. And then you realize, wait a minute, no. If this picture of judgment that he is really talking about, if this is true, then the only way for me to turn from a rebel to a friend, the only way for me to be able to enter into this garden with the king, to go into paradise, is for Jesus to resist that temptation and stay exactly where he was, to not act when it was his right to act, to stay where he would have been, where he was, just so that he could save us. That is... That is the ultimate hope, that Jesus chooses not to save himself and by that choice instead saves us. Now, I hope you'll come back Friday night, unless you're in Italy, because we'll keep reading through the end of the chapter, and then we'll back up, we'll look at even more lessons of this entire account from from Good Friday and Luke. But for now, let this take us to the Lord's table, this Jesus 
who hung on that cross, who refused to, to, to come down, who experienced the wrath that we deserve so that our sins might be forgiven. Pray with me as we come to the table together. Our Father, we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you for what it means. And we thank you for the picture that, it gives us, that we are given here. A celebration that you yourself instituted so that we might know what it looks like for forgiveness to happen. What was required for forgiveness to happen. Lord, as we celebrate, help us to glorify and to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.